Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. This was a well-timed interview with my guest today, Dr. James Walsh of MIT. Jim is a nuclear security expert and one of the few Americans who've traveled to both Iran and North Korea for talks on nuclear issues. And Jim actually somewhat frequently meets with North Korean officials to discuss their nuclear program. I spoke with Jim on the day that Moon Jae-in was elected as president of South Korea, potentially setting up a very different dynamic for nuclear diplomacy with the North. We kick off with a discussion about this new South Korean leader and how his approach to the North may differ from that of his predecessor. We then pivot to a longer conversation about how Jim became involved in nuclear issues and his decades-long study of North Korea's nuclear program. This was a great conversation, a lively conversation, and you will learn a whole lot about North Korea and nuclear security issues, so stay tuned. Before we begin, though, I do want to draw your attention to the list of premium episodes available for premium subscribers. They're listed on the description field of this podcast episode. If you're listening on iTunes or really any podcast listening app, you can see in the description field the episodes that I've already published and the ones that are on the way for premium subscribers. There are about six or seven right now with more to come. Also, premium subscribers get complimentary access to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service. This is a hand-curated by me and my partner, Tom Murphy, list of the most important and relevant news from around the world delivered to your inbox every morning. Lots of government agencies and NGOs and people around the UN and just people who want to uh, know more about what's happening around the world when they wake up in the morning, subscribe to this service and it can be yours for free if you become a premium member. So thank you. All right. Now here is Dr. James Walsh of MIT. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, he's a political figure that has been around for some decades, out of the camp of folks who were more liberal in our, in the U.S. parlance, the more liberal of the South Korean parties. Remember that he is, his election follows the, essentially the impeachment and the jailing of South Korea's previous president, President Park. She was a conservative and her predecessor was a conservative. And so for a variety of reasons, it's no surprise that a more liberal candidate would take uh, his turn at the seat of power. Um, I think the impact uh, as far as South Korean foreign policy, uh, it, I think most people are betting that he will be more of an engager. You know, you've had both in to some extent in the U.S., but even more so in South Korea, a sort of swinging back and forth of policy preferences. And I don't want to overstate this because a lot of times uh, for reasons of reality, 
presidents end up in the middle. But at least rhetorically, uh, the conservatives, not surprisingly, have campaigned on getting tough with North Korea, punishing North Korea, standing up to North Korea. And those on the liberal side have talked more about engagement, the sunshine policy, opening up uh, to North Korea and trying to induce them or otherwise talk them uh, into uh, better behavior. And certainly Moon is on that end of the spectrum. Um, I personally think engagement is an, uh, an important a tool, an underused tool in foreign policy in general, and in particular in the case of North Korea. But the problem one has, and it's been an age-old problem uh, on the peninsula, is that we often find ourselves in a situation where a president, a U.S. president, will have one philosophy, and then the South Korean president will have the opposite philosophy. One will be an engager, the other will be a coercer, or vice versa. And uh, that makes it difficult because then the allies are not on the same page. And in this particular case, it's not clear what uh, Mr. Trump's philosophy will be. He's, uh, his official policy, the one that they, they actually conducted a policy review and concluded that their policy would be, quote, extreme pressure and engagement. So engagement did make it to the tagline. And he has talked about meeting, potentially meeting Chairman Kim. But certainly most of the rhetoric has been on the bluster and bluffing and threats and, and that sort of thing. So the question is whether these two gentlemen can get along uh, uh, personally, which I think is important in, in this, for this particular presidency, whether there are going to be strong personal relations, and then can they get together on the policy side and coordinate so that they are acting together rather than uh, in opposite directions. And is it fair to say that China's preferences for how to deal with uh, the North Korean nuclear issue uh, are probably closer in line to Moon's than, say, to the United States? I think so. I mean, certainly the well, there. I think there are two priorities for China, uh, uh, near-term priorities for China on the peninsula. One is uh, restarting six-party talks. Uh, the other is preventing or otherwise getting rid of the THAAD uh, missile defense system, which Beijing sees as being aimed not simply at North Korea, but at China as well. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we should say this is a uh, missile defense system that the United States recently deployed to South Korea as a theoretically a, a way to uh, you know, shoot any you know, North Korean rockets out of the sky. But China deems this missile defense system as a threat to uh, its own sovereignty and its own uh, security issues as well. Yes, and we could have a whole program on that. I hopefully we won't, no. but we could have a whole program on this. And I would say for listeners who are not too familiar with this, uh, that they should be clear that the U.S. providing this missile system, uh, missile defense system, was not an act of reassurance for an ally. You can imagine a circumstance where South Korea feels very threatened, and they say, please, U.S., give us this missile defense system so that we won't be vulnerable to missile attack. That's not what happened here. Uh, in my trips to uh, South Korea over the years, I never had a single meeting, not one single meeting, in which the South Korean military or diplomatic official sitting across from me at the table said, we want THAAD. That just didn't happen. No, it wasn't the South Koreans who wanted THAAD. It was the U.S. that wanted THAAD, and in particular, the Pentagon. And uh, the again, the, the Chinese worry less about the missile defense system itself than this big radar that can peer 
far beyond the horizon into China. And that's what it got, has mm-hmm. gotten it upset. But in any case, so the Chinese want a resumption of six-party talks. They don't want, uh, they've called on both parties, the U.S. and North Korea to stop irritating each other. Uh, they don't want a crisis. Why don't they want a crisis? Because they don't want a war on their border. They don't want a failed nuclear weapon state on their border. So they want negotiations. The incoming Moon administration would likely want negotiations. The Trump administration has occasionally made positive noises about that. But, you know, one message on Tuesday, another on Thursday. But mm-hmm. it seems to me that if uh, Mr. Trump is pleased with what China has done so far on North Korea following that summit, and he does seem to be spoken warmly of President Xi, uh, then he will know that this is not a one-way street, that if uh, China is stepping up and doing things uh, that the U.S. wants, well, the U.S. is probably going to have to step up and do a couple of things that China wants. And my guess is that's going to be a resumption of the six-party talks. Huh, that is your guess. That That's fascinating. So, um, you know, it, it is clear that there is not like a unified message coming from the Trump administration. But one message that is coming from the Trump administration was relayed a couple of weeks ago uh, after we're speaking when Secretary of State Rex Tillerson chaired a Security Council meeting on North Korea and called for, I, I can't remember his precise term of art, but it was like a beefed up sanctions regime, like like calling on the United States, other countries to do more to enforce more harsher sanctions. Yeah, well, well good luck with that, you know, because <laughs> uh, that there, there's some uh, my colleague John Park from Harvard and I uh, wrote a study last year about sanctions uh, against North Korea and whether they were effective or not. And if not, why not? And w- we interviewed North Korean defectors, uh, w- what we called uh members of North Korea, Inc. These were officials who were in state trading companies whose job was to procure illicit and illicit items. Their, their job was to you know, evade sanctions. And when we talked to them to try to document what their practices were and their partnerships and, and how they did their work. And so when it comes to sanctions, there are sort of three big issues here. One is uh, that this isn't every country's top priority. It's, it's sort of a low priority. And in fact, every time the UN panel of experts comes out with a report, as they did this past February, it sort of uh, lists all the deficiencies and all the problems in getting countries to go ahead and implement the sanctions that are already on the books. So one issue is implementation. Another is evasion. Uh, the North Koreans, you know, they're not dumb. Uh, we pass sanctions and they take countermeasures. They innovate. And we keep doing the same thing over and over again. We don't really ever respond to their countermeasures. And sanctions, if anything, are an iterative game where you have to be able to be nimble and react to what your adversary is doing. And we don't we don't do that. And the final thing, you know, it's structurally uh, just difficult. I mean, North Korea is quite lucky. Uh, The U.S. is lucky in geography. The U.S. is surrounded by two big oceans and two big weak neighbors. That's a winner In, in the international politics lottery. That's a big win. Unlike, let's say, Poland caught between you know, uh, Germany and Russia or Tibet. Uh, uh, but North Korea uh, was probably the second place winner because they're smack dab next to one of the biggest and uh, most robust economies in the world. So all they have to do is sort of just, you know, not screw it up and they're going to get some economic benefits from that. So lots of challenges with sanctions. But let me go on and just briefly say that 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 policy of uh, maximum pressure 
and engagement that was the announced policy of the Trump administration, some of that in the policy review was actually thought, uh, it was thought that that would be focused on China, that the U.S. would impose secondary sanctions on Chinese banks and other Chinese companies as a way to coerce China into cooperating with us on North Korea. Well, it's hard to imagine under current circumstances uh, that after saying all these nice things about China and China stepping up to some extent that we're going to turn around and start sanctioning them. So it's hard to sanction North Korea. I think it's even harder to sanction China. So I don't have much hope for the sanctions track. And in any case, sanctions are just one little modest tool. And I think we obsess with them. Certainly the DC policy community does. Sanctions are only useful if they are tied to a broader political strategy. Uh, that's what gets the work done is a political strategy that, that in which in this case, North Korea sees a reason of self-interest to change its behavior, that it benefits from changing its behavior rather than continuing down the same route. And I don't know that we have a political strategy right now. So at this point, what do you think is, is more likely to happen first, a resumption of the six-party talks or a sixth nuclear test? Oh, that's a good one. Thanks. I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah, I just thought of it. Actually, I thought yeah. of it. You know, yeah. I, I did not have that one written down. I well, usually don't like to do predictions because, you know, these podcasts are kind of like evergreen, like people could listen to this a year from now, but let's go on the record. Yeah, the well, expert, thanks for putting yeah. me in a spot there, buddy. <laughs> thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, resumption of talks, uh, you know, whether it's six-party talks or four-party talks or something. Uh, it seems to me, this is just wildly speculative on my part, um, but I'm not getting paid, so it doesn't matter, The um, that the... The North Koreans could have, they, they've been ready to conduct a nuclear test for some time now. All they have to do is make the decision and they can do it. Uh, they've been ready. So a lot of folks thought they were going to do it during that big uh, parade and celebration of the birthday of their founder, Kim Il-sung, and then they didn't do it. And then a lot of people thought, well, two weeks later, uh, I think it was April 25th when they had Armed Forces Day celebrating the, uh, the founding of the Korean People's Army. Well, they might do it then. And they didn't do it. And uh, there have been stories out of the AP Bureau in Pyongyang that there's been gas rationing in the capital city, which is really something if you're even rationing, if you're rationing gas, even for the elites who live in the capital city. So it may be that the North Koreans are showing a little restraint here, are not uh, pulling the trigger on a nuclear test, uh, you know, go, going ahead with sort of minor uh, missile tests, but not a nuclear test. And that, if that interpretation is correct, that they're, they're exercising some restraint here, that may pave the way for uh, negotiations to resume. So I'm, I'm betting negotiations. So when was the last time you were in North Korea? Oh, it was a long time ago. I was last in North Korea in 2005. But I regularly met with North Koreans in sort of neutral third countries, you know, in uh, Switzerland and Sweden and places like that. So... Every year or so, I have a chance to sit down with North Korean officials in a private meeting and talk about U.S.-North uh, Korean relations. It's like but, a track uh, two diplomacy sort of thing? Yes. We, normally, that's called track two. Uh, with the North Koreans uh, sort of insider thing here, it's always a 1.5. Uh, because, because I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah. So track, uh, so track one is government to government. Yeah. And track three is sort of like citizen diplomacy, you know, ping pong and wrestling and that sort of thing. And then track two is supposed to be sort of retired officials and experts who know a lot uh, or, and have some ties to the government, 
but can sit down with their counterparts in the same situation and have more open talks uh, that then they can communicate the results to to their governments. And hopefully that sort of paves the way or uh, helps reduce misperception. In this case, the American side is always retired officials and experts, but the uh, North Korean side is always government officials. Ah, okay. So it's sort of uh, halfway in between a track one and a track two. That's that's fascinating. So so let's let's um, let's tell your story. Let's work up to to your visit to North Korea in two thousand five and, and learn a little bit more about how you became so interested in these issues and, and where you come from. So where are you from? Where were you born? I was born in McKees Rocks, a uh, uh, a town right outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My you have good- that twang, that that Pittsburgh twang. I must say. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a mutt in that respect. So I, I was born in Pittsburgh. Uh, mother and father went to Catholic high school. Met there. Got married. Uh, neither, uh, you know, went to college. They went out into the work world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was about three, they moved down to Atlanta. So I picked up a little or to Georgia and then eventually to Atlanta, and I picked up a bit of an accent there. Uh, And then I left to go to college, first person in Mm -hmm. my uh, family to go to college, and then that brought me back north to uh, Rhode Island, and then have pretty much been in New England uh, ever since. So what what did your your parents do? I mean, uh, you say you're the the first to go to to college in your... um, in, in your generation of, of your family, like what yeah. did you, were you talking about like politics as a kid about international issues, about nuclear issues? Like how did you, I suppose, first become aware of, of the bomb? Yeah, there is this little cult, powerful cult. It's called high school debate. Hmm. It's a bizarre uh, group of young people. Uh, and I got caught up in that. And, um, You know, you travel around and and enter tournaments and you would go through rounds, you know, just like an athletic competition, Uh, only it was uh, you would be debating whatever the topic was for the year for the country that year. And uh, a lot of it was policy debate. You know, what sort of policy should we have? Uh, And I was very much uh, interested in nuclear weapons issues then. And then when I got to college, just as I was uh, getting to college, uh, that was when Ronald Reagan won the presidency, and there was uh, that was the last moment in broader American society when nuclear weapons uh, were an issue that the public cared about. Because mm-hmm. uh, there was a, that a, really big nuclear freeze exact, uh, movement exactly. right at the time. Can right. you th- yeah, talk a little bit about that because that that is like it's it's before my time, but I know that it is like profoundly influential on a, a lot of people, perhaps of of your generation. Yeah, thanks for rubbing that in. I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, so the last time the, uh, there there was, it's hard to believe once upon a time in America, uh, nuclear weapons, all nuclear weapons, whether they were owned by the Soviets, uh, or owned by Americans were seen as dangerous and a threat to peace and security. And so in the 1950s and the 1960s, you had mass movements, uh, you know, on the board of the anti-nuclear organizations were people like Martin Luther King and, and Linus Pauling, famous scientists. Uh, famous figures in civil rights and entertainment. It was really a broad-based uh, public concern where the public saw all nuclear weapons as dangerous. Uh, and then uh, and the last sort of uh, glimpse of that was the 1980s. Ronald Reagan came to office, uh, was seen as deeply uh, anti-Soviet, uh, was in, uh, initiated a very large military buildup, used to joke about nuclear war, which would occasionally be caught on tape inadvertently. 
Uh, and then uh, he decided uh, to station intermediate range nuclear missiles in Europe. Uh, and the Europeans objected to that. The uh, European citizenry objected to that. So there were massive protests. And then uh, that happened here as well. And it looked like there was going to be a big arms race. And Randy Forsberg, a, a product of yeah. The MIT Security Studies Program was one of the founders of the Freeze Movement. And it was the last time in America when Americans uh, of every walk of life really saw a, a, a nuclear danger. Now, what happened was, you know, 10 years later, the Soviet Union fell apart. The Cold War was over. And most Americans thought the nuclear danger was over with it. And the whole frame changed. I think this is what is fundamental. The frame changed from nuclear weapons in which all nuclear weapons are a danger, to proliferation, mm -hmm. where the problem is, oh, these crazy countries that might get nuclear weapons, not the nuclear weapon states who already have nuclear weapons, but proliferation that they would spread, and that that was the danger. And not only did that shift the focus, it also shifted a sense of agency. Uh, pre that period, you know, pre-end of the Cold War, citizens thought it was their responsibility to do something about the nuclear danger, but in a proliferation frame, that was the job of governments. That was no longer the concern of citizens. It was up to governments to handle this scary problem. And essentially, Americans stepped away from that. Uh, we may see that change un under this administration. I mean, it all depends on events. Uh, but it, for, for at least for me, for, for my, uh, the, my life narrative, I grew up in a time when people were concerned about nuclear weapons, where I was engaging policy on that topic, and then entering college when, it was, when there was more of a mass movement on, on it. And then I went off and did different things. I was a community organizer. I used to work with, right out of college, I worked with uh, low-income people and the elderly, and then I moved to Boston. I was a race relations community organizer. I worked in the neighborhood in Boston, Hyde Park, that had the highest rate of racially motivated violence of any neighborhood in the city of Boston. Uh, so I did a variety of things, and then eventually went back to graduate school. And then it was in graduate school, as, as studying to get a PhD in political science, mm -hmm that I went back to security studies and started focusing again on nuclear weapons. Well, what, what made you want to uh, make that switch from, from activism, from community organizing to working on, on domestic political and social issues to uh, focus on, on international security issues? Well, I guess uh, I've always been interested in all these things and I don't see them as being um, mutually exclusive. And part of it is driven by, you know, uh, life's opportunities. A lot of this is luck and happenstance. And so uh, the fact was, when I got out of college, I was offered a job to be a, a community organizer. And, and in high school, I had done race relations work. Uh, I, uh, for a summer job, had worked for a Atlanta-based nonprofit that w investigated banks over their lending, the so-called Credit Reinvestment Act and the problem of redlining, where banks would simply not make loans to entire neighborhoods simply because they were black uh, or minorities. So I had some experience with that uh, in school. So, I, you know, I, I was able to, I had the bandwidth to be interested in a couple of different issues. But then when I graduated from college, there was no one offering me a nuclear related job, but there was someone there to offer me a job uh, in, uh, in working with low income people and the elderly. And I took that job, that community organizer job in 1982 for the whopping salary of nine thousand dollars a year. It's a small fortune. 
Um, so, so, um, so how, how, why MIT though? I mean that, that obviously, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's known mostly as like a tech place, uh, but it does of course have a very robust political science and, and social science, uh, uh, branch of it and, and, and programs there. But like what, what drew you to MIT? Yeah, a couple of things. One, you know, by this point in my life, I'm married, I have children. I, I, I'm not looking to pull up stakes and, and chase graduate school in you know, some other locale, some other city. Uh, so I was, uh, had decided that if I was going to go to graduate school, it would be in the Boston area. And uh, that helped narrow the choices. And MIT, uh, as you rightly point out, has a top 10 political science department. Uh, number one or number two, econ department, very strong in the social sciences. And in particular, they had something that the other area universities didn't have. They had a specific program that addressed uh, questions. Of, uh, back in those days, it was called Defense and uh, Arms Control, uh, DACS, Defense and Arm Con- Arms Control Studies Program. Uh, uh, post-Cold War, it shifted its name to Security Studies Program. But the the bottom line being, at MIT, you had some of the leading lights who had worked on nuclear issues beginning in the Kennedy and Johnson administration and, and going forward, George Rathjens, Carl Kazin, Jack Ruina are all major names, uh, both in security in general and in nuclear affairs in particular. And I had a, uh, got to know George Rathjens as someone who was applying, and he eventually took me under his wing and was my dissertation chair and got me involved in all sorts of things. Uh, and so it, it was the best fit for me and a, a really great university that, uh, where the program really focused on, on things that were of interest to me. What was your dissertation on? My dissertation was called bombs unbuilt. Uh, and essentially it, it tried to get at a, a particular puzzle, which is there are far fewer nuclear weapon states, countries that acquired nuclear weapons than everyone predicted. Everyone, scholar, government, uh, official, uh, the intel community, if you look at their predictions predictions during the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, it was all that nuclear weapons were going to spread like wildfire. And in fact, the very opposite happened. And again, this is the model that everyone has in their mind. And you hear it, you heard it from President Trump saying, oh, it's inevitable that Japan and South Korea will get nuclear weapons and blah, blah, blah. This is the, and I don't blame him for that. This is sort of the model that's stuck in everyone's head, and it just turns out to be factually wrong. When you look at the rate of proliferation, how many new countries join the nuclear weapons club every decade, how many newcomers, that number peaked in the 1960s when three countries joined the nuclear weapons club, uh, China, Israel, and France. And then in every ensuing decade, the number of countries that have acquired nuclear weapons has gone down down, down, down. Since the 1990s, we have had more countries give up their nuclear weapons assets than have become nuclear weapons states. Only North Korea, the outlier to define all outliers, uh, is the country that has crossed that line. But it's a tremendous record of success. It's an underappreciated and little understood record of success. And it was also a very interesting intellectual puzzle. And and did your uh, your dissertation try to explain why that was, or just identify that as a success? No, no, yeah, you don't get the, the in political science, you don't get the dissertation. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't get your degree unless you come up with an explanation for something. And of course, naturally, my explanation explains everything. Of course. Uh, total of explanatory course power. Total explanatory power. Oh. <laughs> uh, I do think I get at one piece of it, 
And again, uh, what I would consider a under-recognized uh, piece of it, you know, a lot of folks, when they try to explain this puzzle, say, well, it's because we bullied and coerced other states into not getting nuclear weapons, or maybe they really didn't feel threatened or whatever it is. And uh, at least in the cases I looked at, I showed that those were not very strong explanations. And what I point to is, uh, shockingly, the role of international institutions, in particular the nonproliferation yeah. regime. And while it's hard to believe this little piece of paper could uh, affect the decisions of governments about the most powerful weapon in human history, that a little bit of paper might alter that, a bit of paper that doesn't even have an enforcement clause, it turns out, and I'm not going to go into it unless you force me to, it turns out that it had, a, I, I believe, had a dramatic effect on uh, the evolution of uh, the, the uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear spread and, and is one of the reasons why we have enjoyed such great success. So the non-proliferation treaty is just that awesome. It is. As a treaty, it's chock full of holes, but it, in terms of its political effect on individual governments – and, and again, it's not because people love international law. That's not what's going on here. What happened, though, is by having this treaty, it, it actually reached down and affected the decision calculus mm -hmm. of individual countries as they were trying to decide what their nuclear future was going to be. Just to give you one small uh, taste of what I'm talking about. Prior to NPT, you know, if, if let's say you had some defense minister who wanted a nuclear weapon. Well, he would whisper into the ear of, his president or prime minister and say, hey, you know, we ought to really get nuclear weapons. And, uh, the, you know, if the prime minister said, no, we're not going to do that, he said, okay, fine. He'd wait for the next prime minister. He'd wait for the next president. And it was always a decision made, uh, you know, behind closed doors with a very small number of actors, usually the head of state, uh, the head of the military, and the head of the uh, nuclear establishment. And it was always a defense decision. Well, NPT changes all that. Now we have this public treaty, and you've got to sign it or not sign it. And if you don't sign it, all the other governments in the world know that you are not signing it. And moreover, your own government knows that there's a treaty there. And so it reframes the issue from being a defense issue involving only three players into a foreign policy issue. So now the Treasury is sitting at the table, and the foreign minister is sitting at the table. And when you change who gets to play, and you change uh, the, uh, not only who gets to vote, but what their interests are, that changes outcomes within a country. And so the, uh, the NPT essentially drew a line in the sand and forced countries to uh, be public about their nuclear decision-making, not only to the rest of the world, but to their own governments. And that, that just reframed it and changed, uh, uh, it changed everything. And, and once in the treaty, really, really hard to get out. You know, not like the old days, where if you didn't convince the prime minister, you could always hope to convince the next one. Nuh -uh, not like that anymore. Once you've signed that treaty, once you have safeguards agreements, once you have inspectors on the ground, once you have a process that has created political winners and losers, much more difficult to get out of that. So uh, at what point did you realize after having written this dissertation that you uh, kind of wanted to be a lifer in academia, maybe, maybe a lifer at MIT? Well, um, I've been blessed in that I've always been able to do different things. And even in my uh, academic life, I've been able to combine uh, interest in scholarship and an interest in contemporary policy. And that's a luxury uh, not afforded to a lot of folks. 
Uh, part of it is at MIT. MIT, is, as you rightly point out, is a science and engineering school. It's very practically oriented. It prides itself on being relevant uh, to real world problems and problem solving. And so it was an institution uh, quite rare, and it afforded me the ability to both conduct scholarly research, but to go testify before Congress or to travel to North Korea or to travel to Iran, uh, to participate in track twos, to write policy briefings, uh, to meet with senators and presidents. So I've been able to do a little bit of both and no one uh, has kicked me out so far. So can we talk about your, your trip to North Korea? You said 2005, right? Is, is yep. what you said. Can you maybe set the scene? Like how, first of all, how, how do you, how does one get like an invite to North Korea if you're not like Dennis Rodman? Yeah. Well, in a way that is true of all human relations and, and, and perhaps particularly in Asia, it's a matter of reciprocity. So I had spent, after I graduated from MIT, I spent uh, eight or nine years at Harvard. And while at Harvard, I, I ran something called uh, the Managing the Atom Project, which was focused on nuclear issues. And I, uh, in my capacity of director, uh, as director, I invited the North Korean ambassador to the United Nations in New York to come to Harvard for a closed door meeting. And he agreed to that. And that went well. And then I, the next step was I invited a delegation from North Korea to come to uh, Harvard again for a closed door meeting with officials and academics and they came and that went very well. well like, what are the purposes of those meetings? Like, like what, what were, I mean, kind of the overarching things that you would discuss? Well, we, uh, at, you know, 2000, those are the early 2000s when North Korea's nuclear program is still pretty young. And so uh, we're talking about uh, U.S.-North Korean relations. Mm -hmm. We're talking about uh, the prospects for constraining or reducing those nuclear efforts, uh, uh, the possibility for a negotiated settlement, uh, problems in the bilateral relationship. They would tell us what they were mad at us about, and we would tell them what we were mad about. But part of it was also simply communication. Yeah, uh, we, we have not had diplomatic relations with North Korea. I've, I'm a really old school in that I, I think that's a mistake. I think you hold your friends close and your enemies closer. And that we should always, it's more important to have diplomatic relations with your enemies uh, because you want to know what's going on. You want a line of communication so that you reduce the risk of conflict based on miscalculation or misperception. And instead, we treat it as a gift or a reward. We'll only talk to you if you're nice to us. I think that's silly so and undermines our security. If this was the early 2000s, then it was around the time that the Bush administration was weighing or considering pulling out of the agreed framework, that, that sort of framework that the Clinton administration had in place, the kind of uh, enticements to North Korea f uh, and for not going nuclear, even though the Bush administration accused North Korea of, of um, subterfuge and, and going nuclear and eventually pulled out of it. And that's kind of how we ended up in this current spiral we're in now. But you're trying to prevent all that? Yes. And, uh, you know, at different points, uh, it was different things. So uh, at one point it was uh, trying to preserve it. Another point it was trying to see if negotiations could begin again. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to add a footnote. I'm a scholar after all on this agreed framework, this uh, agreement that we had that ran from roughly uh, 1994 to 2002. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. Uh, there's a Washington narrative that it was a failure and it fell apart because North Korea cheated. And I think half of that is just dead wrong and the other half is wildly incomplete. 
If you look at a chart of North Korean missile and nuclear tests, uh, there's one that was in the Washington Post. Uh, they're, they're easy to find, you know, with little dots representing each test in a given year. What you see when you look at this chart is, well, first thing you notice is since the young Kim has taken power, man, have the tests increased in frequency. But the other thing you notice is this curious little space uh, where there is no testing at all uh, before it jumps back up. And that space was the agreed framework. Mm -hmm. For some eight years, uh, the North Koreans did not produce fissile material, uh, material for a nuclear weapon, and did not conduct a long-range missile test. So if you ask me, that worked pretty well. Yeah. In fact, I would take a freeze today in a heartbeat rather than having North Korea continue its massive testing program and improving its capabilities. There now, is, I should say, there, there is, I think, a, a narrative, and I think one I subscribe to that you might be hinting at, that it, it really was the hardliners in the Bush administrations, uh, the uh, Bolton and, and Dick Cheney, who... Um, whose decision to accuse North Korea of violating the Creed framework kind of set into motion the proliferation uh, of, of and, and, and North Korea's desire to want to, to proliferate even more. Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely right. Now, North Korea makes its contribution to the clash yeah. of this agreement by they begin looking in clandestinely into procuring in because they're. Uh, Plutonium reactor, that's one path to the bomb is plutonium. Their plutonium reactor was shut down. So they started investigating the possibility of importing centrifuges uh, that would allow you the other path to the bomb, which is a highly enriched uranium. So they were doing that, that it was a violation. But I you know, spoke to officials at, at very high positions during that period who told me, you know, that was an issue we could have sat down and worked out. But I think, you know, you remember Vice President Cheney saying, we don't negotiate with evil, we defeat it. I think that was their attitude towards the agreed framework. They had already pulled out, the Bush administration had already pulled out of the uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty. And some of this even predates the Bush administration. You'll remember that the agreed framework was negotiated by President Clinton, who then immediately suffered this massive uh, off-year election defeat that brought uh, uh, Mr. Gingrich to power. And immediately that Republican-controlled Congress started to defund aspects of the agreed framework. So in the agreed framework, we promised the North Koreans, among other things, that we were going to normalize relations and that we were going to uh, provide them with a, a security assurance. They promised that we would not attack them and that we would build them a light water reactor to produce energy. We did none of those things. In fact, we put them on the axis of evil uh, and threatened them. So you know, it, it, it came out of the gate shaky and then things got worse on both sides. And then the uh, Bush administration took that as an opportunity to put a bullet in it. Uh, and, and so this said, was the context, though, in which you were meeting with North Koreans in, in Harvard. Yes, yes, exactly. So exactly. so how did you get that invite to, to North Korea then? Uh, so I, yeah, I'm sorry, I got sidetracked. No, so no, this is again, all, these podcasts all about digressions about these <laughs> interesting issues. I love so it. It's a it's about reciprocity. So first, I invite the ambassador up. Then I invite a delegation from from Pyongyang, who later at the end of the event had dinner with my children, my young children uh, at the time. And I said to each of my children that for Christmas that year, they were each going to get their own FBI file. <laughs> and then after inviting the uh, delegation, then the North Korean government reciprocated by inviting me to go to North Korea. That's how these things work. Huh. 
you know, back and forth, back and forth. And so what, what's that, what's that journey? Like how, how does one get to North Korea from, from Boston? Kind of take me through that and what, what sort of stepping off the plane looked and felt like. Yeah, it was, well, first of all, I, I was going by myself and they really didn't provide me any details. I mean, when I got off the plane in Pyongyang, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if someone was meeting me. I, all I knew was that I was getting off the plane. Now, so the way you do that in those days, you flew to Beijing and there is a flight uh, in uh, once a week and a flight out once a week. And so I go to this Air Corio, which is the North Korean airline, Air Corio plane. It's a hot day in July in Beijing, humid. And there are two sets of stairs for the plane. One set is for officials who are sitting in the front of the plane, and the rest is the cattle car for us. So I walk up these stairs, to, and I enter into uh, the, the cabin. And I, the first thing is I hear military music, martial music playing in the background. And then I stick my head through the open door, and I see you know, just this white fog uh, you know, coming out of the air conditioning vents, you know, just flooding the plane, you know, and this is because it's so humid, right? But I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's the sleeping gas. This is uh, the Manchurian candidate. I'm coming back with a chip in my head. So uh, I get on the plane, you know, and it's a relatively short flight and I land, you know, and I don't know what to do. So I just get in line like everyone else and hand them my passport. But someone does come and get me. Uh, and I spent a week there, half the time talking to officials, half the time sort of going on this trail of tears march from monument to monument, uh, yeah. museum to museum. But uh, they treated me with tremendous respect. They, uh, the head of their delegation to the six-party talks, uh, Kim Gae-Gwan, posted me my first night at a dinner. Uh, he later became foreign minister. And uh, I was you know, uh, treated with tremendous respect and, 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 uh, with great hospitality. Did you gain any insights into like the North Korean politics, North Korean diplomacy that you might not otherwise have gleaned even to, to this day without having set foot in Pyongyang? Absolutely. Without doubt. Uh, no doubt about it. And to me, it shows the value of this track two or, Mm -hmm. offline like what like what can you what can you identify because one of like my key frustrations just as a reporter covering these issues is i get the impression that no one really knows what they're talking about when it comes to north korea because we know so little about the internal dynamics of of the country that everything is just kind of everyone's best guess um but is there i mean something that you can identify as having been important to your understanding of how the the government works how the country works based on your experience on the ground there uh, yes. Um, well, this comes, uh, the knowledge comes in two forms. Uh, being there on the ground gives you sort of a thick, uh, detailed understanding of some things. Now it's also easy to overread that, you know, sometimes p people visit North Korea and they, they think everything is symbolic of some larger truth. So as an analyst, you, you have to be careful that not everything you see is necessarily meaningful or predictive, but there are some things that were, uh, and that uh, served me well later because I, I got to see the city, uh, broadly see the city in 2005, so that I can tell you that Pyongyang today is far wealthier than Pyongyang when I was there. I can say that with great confidence. But there's a second set of things that the North Koreans told me in particular, 
things that I was able to pass on to the Bush administration that I am told reached the highest levels of government, quote unquote, that did have an impact on their decision to re-enter negotiations after they blew up the agreed framework. You'll remember that in the second Bush administration, I mean, in the second term, with Condoleezza Rice moving from national security advisor to secretary of state, there were new negotiations with North Korea. And I have it on good authority that what I was able to report to the administration as a private citizen uh, affected their calculations. Mm -hmm. So I can't really obviously go into those. Uh, But uh, so uh, two different things. You know, the North Koreans were telling me things and they expected me to go back and tell the things they were telling me to uh, to our government. And I did that. And that seems to have helped. Uh, but there's also things that you pick up just because you're there and you're seeing something with, with your own eyes. So you visited in 2005, uh, in 2006, North Korea detonated its first of five so far nuclear tests. Did that surprise you? Like, how did you come, come to learn the news? Like, well, like what was that? Uh, how did you interpret that news and, and where were you at the time? I'm sorry. Could you repeat that question? I apologize. Uh, sure, sure. So um, you're in North Korea in 2005. In 2006 was the first detonation of, of uh, North Korea's nuclear test, first of five nuclear tests. Yes. So how did you come to know that the North Korea had launched their nuclear test? And did that like surprise you in any way after having been there? Um. Well, I, I, I learned these things as I often do when it comes to North Korea, which is because the time difference is so great. It's 12 or 13 hours. You know, I get a call in the middle of the night and it's, you know, some member of the press asking me to comment on stuff. So I have to sort of wake up and get my bearings and clear my throat and uh, and think about it. Uh, it's see, anytime uh, a country tests for the first time, it's always a surprise. I remember when... Uh, India, after having tested in 74, India and Pakistan tested uh, in the 90s. I remember being in California and getting that call uh, in the middle of the night. So, you know, it's like death. Even if you expect it, it's a surprise when it happens. Uh, And, you know, once it happens, then you can tell yourself, oh, well, yes, of course, I expected that to happen, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, of course they did. Uh, But I think if people are being honest, it's it's uh, always a surprise. What surprised you about it? Like how, how at the time were you like, oh my gosh, they actually went for it. They actually, they actually did this. Well, you know, as someone who's spent most of their life trying to reduce the threat posed by nuclear weapons, it was certainly unwelcome news. Um, but, you know, also I, I didn't want to read too much into it. Having a test doesn't mean you have a nuclear weapon. Having one test, and if you'll remember that initial test, uh, to most analysts, Mine, mines were uh, was a failure. It was a very, at least measured by yield, it was very modest. So uh, one could still have the point of view that that while they had crossed the threshold, this was not fate. It was not inevitable that they would continue with testing and that they would build nuclear weapons and that these would uh, be here to stay forever. So uh, it was definitely disappointing. Uh, and and but it was early enough that one could think, well, uh, there's still time here to put this on a different track. And when was the most your most recent meeting that kind of track 1.5 diplomacy with uh, the North Koreans? That was last year, uh, last May. Now, I've had the opportunity to sit down 
uh, with uh, North Korea's ambassador uh, uh, to the UN in New York in his office or in other settings on several occasions. But uh, it was last, I think it was last May when I was in a European city, uh, you know, with a four or five Americans on one side and four or five North Koreans on the other side. What's uh, sort of based on, on those meetings, like what is a, a common misperception that uh, the American public has, or even like American policymakers have about North Korea and its intentions and how it sees itself in the world? A lot of folks, including people, even in government, uh, believe that uh, either the leadership or the uh, regime is crazy or irrational. And I see no evidence for that whatsoever. I mean, they're human beings. That doesn't mean they're all good human beings. This is a regime that has gulags and has, uh, whose people have suffered greatly. Uh, but uh, many of them are people. They have senses of humor. They're much like the South Koreans uh, I've met. You know, they uh, like to have a drink or two. Uh, there are many, you know, you don't want to broad brush generalizations, but many are outgoing and engaging and you can argue with them and then, uh, smile and do karaoke afterwards. Uh, so, you know, in other words, people are people at some level. I, I would say the other mistake that people make, and they do this with virtually every aspect of foreign policy is that they don't look at the problem uh, through the eyes of the adversary. Uh, they don't look at the world as one might if they lived in Pyongyang. Now, that's not to excuse any North Korean behavior. They shouldn't have prison camps. They shouldn't execute people with any uh, aircraft uh, guns. They shouldn't do any number of things they do. But if we want to solve this problem, and it is a problem, uh, then we need to understand where they're coming from and what their interests are. So as they look out around the world, uh, they see that they're basically alone. And, and by the way, that's our policy, uh, is to ensure that they're alone. And so uh, the fact that they don't trust the Chinese, you know, hate the Japanese because of World War II and all the rest that goes with that, uh, feel that the U.S. is threatening them. It's not unreasonable for them to think that uh, the, the people in the region want their regime to collapse. So the question is then, how do you deal with that? Um, and to recognize, uh, you know, how you might think about it in that situation. It doesn't mean we're all the same and et cetera, et cetera. But rather than just saying they're crazy or they're bad, uh, if we want to really get down to the practical issue of in increasing or enhancing security on the peninsula, not fighting a war that could escalate and involve the use of nuclear weapons, uh, then we need to recognize what North Korean interests are and see if uh, we can find a political strategy uh, where they feel like they're getting something out of an agreement, where we feel like we're getting something out of an agreement, and that we prevent uh, the next Korean War. All right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jim. And if you ever want to contact me with some suggestions of future episodes of people I should interview or topics I should cover, 
There is an email me link in the description field of the podcast uh, episode. So just click on that or you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact form. I do love hearing from you. I think as as many of you know who, who have written to me, I, I, I read all your emails. I write back. Uh, so please get in touch with me if you have anything on your mind. All right. Thanks. See you soon. Bye.